couple of years ago, uh, Scientific American uh, came out with a report. This was a study that had come out of uh, Hong Kong. And the study suggested that flattery actually does work. You tell some guy you really like his tie or some woman that you think she's bright and they are more likely to think well of you even if they have a sneaking suspicion that your compliment may not be sincere. Now, this being Scientific American, of course, they have to come up with a scientific explanation. And by the way, I'm going to be using these a lot today, so don't, don't be distracted by that. But the scientific explanation is that flattery feeds directly into what is called, here comes the next air quote, the above average effect. This is the view held by most all of us, certainly by myself, that we are in fact above average, which is of course statistically impossible. Well, sadly, flattery is particularly problematic for Christians, both giving it and getting it. It's downright dangerous for everybody. As Psalm 36.2 says of people in general, in their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. But given this danger that God is well aware of, Scripture provides us with a wonderful variety of different but highly effective antidotes to flattery of all kinds, both given and received whether directed towards myself, thank you very much, or I'm directing it towards others to try and get something from them. I call these all-purpose prayers. They're short, direct, honest, easy to remember, and biblical. So here's just a sample. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-one. Rescue me. This is great whenever you feel like you're in trouble or you're in trouble with anything. Rescue me. Psalm 116, 16. Behold your servant. God hears this from me all the time. And it's also helpful when you're doing something stupid. But it's like God knows who we are. We are always surprised at the stuff that comes out of us or that goes on in between our ears. We're shocked. He never is. So when one of those things either comes out of my mouth or goes through my head, behold your servant, Lord, no surprises for you. Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God. This is particularly helpful when one can't figure out what's going on inside. 
confusion, angst. Search me, O God. You know. Search me out. Psalm 142, verse 5. You are my portion. This is perfect. For whenever I want something I don't have, which is often enough, you, Lord, are my portion. Mark 9, 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a pretty much a 24-7 one. But each one of these all-purpose prayers has its source in this one that we're going to look at this morning, which throughout the Old Testament and in the parable that we're going to consider together today, this all-purpose prayer is offered up to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But in the earliest days of the New Testament church and further developed quite extensively in the Eastern Orthodox traditions, this became known as the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I was first introduced to the discipline of practicing this prayer many years ago in a book called The Way of the Pilgrim. It's by an anonymous Russian believer back in the 19th century. This is a quotation from what he says in this book. He writes, Many so-called Enlightened people regard the frequent offering of one and the same prayer as useless, even trifling, calling it mechanical, the thoughtless occupation of simple people. But, he goes on, they do not know the secret is revealed as a result of this so-called mechanical exercise, how this frequent offering of the lips imperceptibly becomes a genuine appeal of the heart, how it sinks down into the inner life and becomes a delight to the soul, bringing light and nourishment and communion with God. Our little parable this morning shows how and why this is true. So we start with the audience. As is so often the case, Jesus tells this parable to a specific group of people, and Luke helps us out a great deal by explaining to us In verse 9, that Jesus told this parable to those who had great confidence in their own righteousness and looked down upon everyone else. Now, these two really unsavory qualities right, self-righteousness and looking down on others, 
They're actually the same thing. They're identical expressions of exactly the same problem. Spiritual pride. Jesus tells this parable to those people. So have you ever been critical towards anyone at any time for anything? I didn't think so. Maybe you've said to yourself, well, sure, I I know I've made mistakes, but never that one. Or, yeah, I've been bad, but, but not like that. Or, how could he do what he did? Whenever, and that's whenever I rank or rate or compare myself to anybody else for any reason, at any time, to any degree. By definition, I am guilty of confidence in my own presumed, ever so slightly superior goodness. And therefore, I'm looking down on somebody And therefore, I am flattering myself. Which, if I am not careful, will work. And I will not, therefore, detect my own sin. I will not see the log in my own eye. So, I at least appear to be included in Jesus' target audience for this parable. If you suspect you might be as well, then I suggest we all best listen up for the cure, because there is a cure. Verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other a despised tax collector. Now, the first guy, you get a little preview of it from uh, Tanya and her able assistant. The first, the Pharisee, is a religious, he's devout, he's moral. It's a clean living, upright sort of Bible reading layperson. The kind that we all want to have in our churches. Pharisee who takes God in what God says, in what God requires, seriously. The other, in contrast, is a liar a thief, and a scoundrel. 
As tax collectors in ancient Rome, the first century in which Jesus is living, and telling this parable to his target audience, tax collectors routinely collect way more than they're supposed to. And they pocket what they overcharge, and they never, ever get into trouble for it. It's considered part of your compensation. So these two guys enter the temple court area, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Notice, it doesn't say he's not a sinner, just I'm not as bad. I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there who's made himself rich off of me by stealing money from me, supposedly collecting taxes, I even fast twice a week. Most Jews only do it once. And I give you a tenth of my income. Now, this this is great. There is a minor discrepancy in the text here. Some manuscripts, you know, we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament... They're not always exactly the same. In fact, they're often not. And some manuscripts read that the Pharisee prayed about himself. And other texts read that he prayed to himself. Now, what's cool is that Jesus would have told this parable dozens if not hundreds of times. I mean, how many audiences did he have that could be targeted with this parable? He told it plenty of times and certainly would have used both propositions interchangeably. Jesus wasn't like a robot programmed to say exactly the same thing every time. He he worked his material. It's clear from the Gospels. The point ends up being the same either way. The Pharisee is not praying. He thinks he is, but he's only talking to himself, about himself, flattering himself, sounding very much like every political ad ever produced by anybody in any age. That guy is slimy, corrupt, horrible. Our guy is honest, competent, trustworthy. But true prayer has to come from a true prayer. Someone who does compare himself, for we all do. If if you're sitting there thinking, oh, i got to stop comparing myself to people, forget it. You're not going to be able to stop because spiritual pride is rooted in our sinful nature. So a true prayer is comparing himself, but not to anyone around him or her. Rather, 
true prayer is someone who rates or ranks or grades oneself, who sees oneself in one's own goodness or worth or value in comparison to Christ and his worth and his goodness. So verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is God's vaccine for the deadly virus infecting us all. As nobody is exempt from this parable. Pride, moral superiority, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, a critical spirit. But this vaccine must be administered continuously over and over like a drip. It's not enough to get vaccinated and then come back for a booster in six months. This needs to be a drip, constant Because there are so many irrepressible variants of spiritual pride. And if you want it, the church is masterful at coming up with different ways of expressing our own spiritual pride. Which can never be completely killed. Hence the power of the Jesus prayer. For it expresses these three things. First, sorrow over one's own sin. The truly saved sinner is not sad that he's been caught. He is sad, though accepted, and forgiven and loved, his heart still wanders away from God. He becomes ever more mindful of how that restless, wandering, yearning heart hurts the Lord when it's directed towards anything other than him. So he knows that no matter how his behavior may change for the better, and it will, if he, she, maintains, abides, as we sang, in Christ, behavior will change. Regardless of how one's attitude may improve over time, and that will happen as we continue to press on to know Christ. Our attitudes will improve. And no matter how much one actually does grow in genuine trust and hope and love and actually begins to bear some of the tiniest little fruit of the Holy Spirit that Aaron was speaking of this morning, no matter how much that happens in the life of a Christian, It remains only 
undeserved, unmerited, unearned mercy that saves us. Only God, in his power, by his power, only God holds us fast in Christ. Firm, secure. So the Jesus prayer reminds us only mercy. Secondly, it reminds us of our safety in Christ. Way back in the 60s, early 70s, um, church down in Florida, Pastor James Kennedy, he developed what he called evangelism explosion. It was a technique he trained his church in how to evangelize, and they had one of, they had a question surveys and questions, but here's one of the questions that sort of stuck. When you're talking to people, just trying to share them, share with them about Christ and what Christ has done, you ask, if you died right now, and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer And if I point to any of those times when I did give up what I wanted and I obeyed and I did what God wanted instead, or if I remind him of any of those times that I faithfully resisted temptation or when I did humbly serve somebody and I didn't advertise it, Wrong answer. It may be what survey says. We sang it so beautifully this morning from our, what I like to, I'm going to think of now as my former HCA student band. Had every one of them. It was great. (laughs) That was awesome. Only Christ, only his death covers, hides my sinfulness from the justice of God. And only my trust in his sufficient merit Am I secured in the mercy of God? And thirdly, the security that the Jesus prayer gives us in God's promise. The Jesus prayer is rooted in the biblical principle, really foundational to all of scripture and all of what we believe as Christians, it's the principle of covenant. Covenant. God's, not ours, God's unwavering, everlasting, unchanging, 
never diminishing commitment to his own stated promise to us in Christ. Biblical love, God's love, is based upon his, his decisive, chosen, and undying loyalty to those who trust in Christ. That's it. Our faithfulness does not determine our destiny. God's faithfulness to his promise to stick with you and to stick with me no matter what. His loyalty to me. He does love me. Yes, he loves me. I know he loves me. But when I when we talk about, when we think about God's love for us, don't think about love feelings. Yes, God has those feelings. But that's not what his love is based on. His love is based on he made a promise. He will keep it. Period. So the Jesus prayer enables us to say to God, I am not, Lord, true to you as you are to me. I would be, I want to be. But my heart, my behavior, my attitude, my mind, my speech is ever wandering from you. Ever wanting its own way. I want my own way. But Lord, you have sworn to be faithful to me. And you sealed that oath with your own blood. Therefore, I throw myself headlong upon your promise to hold me fast in spite of myself. Now, practicing the Jesus prayer is no magic formula. No prayer ever is a magic formula. But as with the tax collector, it deepens within us a posture towards God and towards others that we're never going to get down and have it. Okay, now I get it. Now I'm humble. No! No! We just blew it by saying that, right? This is why, did you ever notice, and I was talking about the fruit of the Spirit, humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. Now, why is that? It's because we, as Jesus said, whoever humbles himself, that's a 
We call that a reflexive verb. It means the subject does the action on the direct object. I humble myself. Jesus says, the one who humbles himself will be exalted by someone else. Namely, our Savior. But Jesus also said, the one who exalts himself, who promotes himself, who puts himself above others, who looks down on others, will be humbled. You don't want to put yourself in a position where you need to be humbled by God. Because he'll do it. And you don't want to go there. We learn to humble ourselves. So the Jesus prayer is a drip vaccine against that which ails us. Because this isn't something like a bad habit, you know, that you can quit that bad habit and be done with it. This is the very nature that Jesus came to free us from. Spiritual pride, moral superiority, self-righteousness. And so Jesus concludes this parable in verse 14. I tell you, this sinner... (laughs) Not, not the non-sinner Pharisee, or not the not-as-bad sinner Pharisee, went home justified before God, at peace with God, resting in the mercy of God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be Exalted. Glory to God. Let's pray for a moment. And um, Lord, uh, you have shown us what it means, Lord, to humble ourselves for you. Humbled yourself, Lord. You who did not need mercy, for you were sinless. You who looked at others, looked at us, and had nothing but mercy and love for us. Lord, help us by your grace and your power, Lord, through the discipline of telling ourselves, just saying out loud to you, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You've had me, Lord, for years. You've worked such wonderful things in my life. You've done amazing things to promote your glory through me, Lord, in my life and the things you've done, but I am the same old sinner in need of the same new mercies every day. Thank you, Lord. 
that your new mercies are ever and always there. Oh, glory and thanks and praise to you, Lord. Help us be the people you created us to be. Oh, glory and praise. In your name we pray.